What up, though? Welcome to the Fat Boy MMA Podcast, where we talk about everything combat sports, but mainly MMA. If you want to hear a couple regular MMA fans talk about MMA history, notable fighters, up-and-coming fighters, and everything in between, then this is the podcast for you. Now, I should warn you, we're not professionals, but we are big fans of combat sports. Now, if that sits good with you, grab a beverage, sit back, relax, and let's go. Okay, welcome to another episode of the Fat Boy MMA Podcast. I am your host, DC, and unfortunately, I don't have my co-host here with me, Locke, but I have two very special guests, so I think that makes up for it, right? (laughs) So, first guest I have is a returning guest. I would say, other than myself and Locke, he has been on the episode more than anyone else. So, we have the returning guest, TJ. What's up, man? Happy to be back. Absolutely. It's always something good when you come on. And now we have another special guest, and this gentleman has never been on the podcast before. Um, Something I did not tell him I was going to say, what you all don't know is, he is Rory McDonald's most favorite fan. (laughs) I'm looking at the imagery behind him. He has Rory (laughs) McDonald fat heads all on his wall. So before I introduce him, just know... Don't say anything bad about Rory McDonald in the comments for this show. <laughs> but uh, on a serious note, I have Eric here, and uh, he does have a background in some grappling, some no-gi, everything like that. I'll let him go ahead and introduce himself. Uh, hey, uh, I'm Eric. I have done a little bit of no-gi jiu-jitsu over at 10th Planet Orange County and now 10th Planet Mission Viejo, earned my uh, blue belt, which means I basically don't know anything. Um, thank you for having me on the show. Uh, always happy to chat with a fellow Rory McDonald, McDonald, uh, fan like yourself, you know? <laughs> hey, blue belt, you're almost there. They say the purple is the most important one, right? What is it? Blue or purple? They say is most important. That's where you learn the most. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's true. That's definitely true. <laughs> so on today's, um, episode, this one, we're going to have a conversation about, um, Amanda Nunes, but not your typical fighting conversation that we have had in the past or anything like that. Something was just announced. Of course, as we all know, she just lost her crown, um, you know, in her last fight to Juliana Pena. And since losing that crown, she has decided that she is jumping camps. She's been with ATT, I think, for about 10 years now. I have to double check notes but i think she's been there about 10 years now and um so she's been there for a while and she's jumping camp but not going to like a um another big time you know camp she's actually decided to start her own camp which is um one of those things oh she's been with them since 2015 so for about seven years now but um so she decided she's going to start her own camp and leave ATT. And I thought this would be one of those perfect topics to talk about. Throughout the years, we had, we've had we had people leave and, you know, camps for all types of reasons. Sometimes champions will leave after a loss. Um, sometimes fighters in general after a loss. So I actually wanted to talk about one what everybody thought about Amanda Nunez leaving ATT and starting her own camp. 
But then also, I want to go into, after that, talking about other fighters that you may have thought about that, you know, something pivotal happened in their career, bad or good, after leaving their longtime camp. So um, I actually want to throw the first question out there. I want to throw it out there to Eric, just in kind of what you think about Amanda Nunes leaving ATT, especially right after a loss. Yeah, I think that... um... Well, I found, I, I found it kind of interesting that she chose now to leave, you know. Um, I don't really fault her for wanting to leave. I think that it's important that if you are the champion and, um, and you feel like you need to make a change after a loss, you know, you just lost your title, you feel like you need to change in order to maybe get some more focus, more attention paid to you. Like that's, you're well within your right, you know. We have, um, mm-hmm. fighters have a very limited amount of time that they're going to be in the sport and that they're going to be relevant in the sport and be able to collect those paychecks and you got to maximize those opportunities. Right. So I didn't have an issue with her leaving. I just thought it was kind of odd that there hasn't really been any details as to like, what does it actually mean that she's leaving? Like, you know, we saw, um, what was it? Aljo. I think Aljo moved to Vegas. So he essentially left, you know, the gym over in New York that he was training out of, um, but then he kept some of his coaching staff and some of it was replaced. Some of it was kept. Some of it are people that he like still talks to and like, you know, talks about strategy with, um, and corner him and stuff like that. And so, you know, my biggest question, I guess, after this is like, is Amanda changing everything? Is she going to have an entirely new coaching staff or is she just changing her gym affiliation? Cause if it's just the gym affiliation. I don't think that it changes anything except now she has more control over the situation and she's going to have more attention paid to her when she's in there for her own training. And I think that's a positive thing for her. Yeah, no, definitely a good point. Before I, I, I touch on that, I want to go over to TJ and, and get his opinion on it. I don't know, man. I, how do I follow that up? That was such an analytical <laughs> breakdown. <laughs> Very clean. Like, are you part of her camp? You don't want to tell no, I, look, I mean, you know, on every forum, on every, you know, mountaintop I can scream from, I've always felt like as these fighters are starting to get, you know, at the highest level, they're the champions and they're like the big dogs in the room. They should start looking more to that boxer uh model of building a camp around you and not being sort of stuck in a camp where, you know, a a weekend warrior should not be in the same mats or in the same room as the champion. Mm -hmm. Right. And, Mm -hmm. and that's something you see at some of these big franchise, you know, gems like she was out of, I do think it's extremely concerning. You know, I hate to bring the last person that beat her up, beat her into this conversation, but it's concerning when that, when Juliana's whole argument during the lead up was, I'm hearing rumors of her having issues in her camp and mm-hmm. she's not the best person to camp anymore. And then you have the UFC putting a former training partner, Kate side saying this is, you know, obviously Kayla's, this is next up. She's on the line here. And, you know, you lose one belt. Mm-hmm. That's the other issue. She is not, she's still a champion of another weight class. Right. And you say, not only I'm leaving this camp, but I don't have a home to go to. I'm just making sure y'all know that I'm no longer part of the situation. All of those things kind of, I think it's a red flag. It's a little bit concerning. Um, and it's, it's, it's somewhat like, I don't want to say absurd, but it's just, it's, it's concerning. Yeah, no, I think both of you all make good points. I'm going to go in a little bit of a different direction. And, um, I'm going to say that her leaving this camp, especially at this time, I don't think is a good thing at all. Um, I think maybe, as you, you mentioned, TJ, there were some things, you know, that may have been bubbling in the camp already. 
but timing is important, but not to mention, you know, I think a big part of who she became was a good, good fit for what I think ATT does. And if she was leaving ATT, I would need her to really go over to a mastermind that can hone what she has and build on it. Going and starting your own camp definitely does not do that, in my opinion. Um, Especially, you know, listen, people can say what they want, but we live in the world that we live in. Part of her training, she also trains with men. I think it's going to be very difficult for her to get a bunch of solid MMA men over to her own or organization, you know, her own camp. Uh, now, if you're talking about just paying somebody to bring them in, kind of like what you were saying, TJ, like a, a boxer would do, that's different. But to really build a camp, uh, you know, like, a, you know, a ATT or, you know, name name, whatever, you know, uh, camp, um, and to have those people that you can train with on a regular basis. Um, that's a whole different story. And I, I really don't see her building that. And especially based on her skill level. Now, everybody that's a part of, you know, the, the, our little, you know, internal fight group knows I've always been a critical of her. And liked her at the same time. It's been a love-hate thing. And it's because I don't think that she's very technical. That has been my critical part. And I think now that she went up against a girl that was just as big as her. That, that can match her size-wise. That could also, you know, head heavy hands. We saw what happened. Now, that doesn't mean that's going to happen in a rematch. But we know how those things work. You've been exposed now. Right? So I think the big change up is a complete change in her game on a technical aspect, you know, diving her into maybe mixing in some counter striking, diving her into now switching it up when girls not prepared for it and doing some takedowns like Valentina did. in I believe the fight before last where she just came out wrestling. It was like, wait a minute, Valentina's a striker. What is this? Right. So. If she was going to a camp that was going to deliver something like that, I would say yes, right? And I believe this will be, she hasn't stayed with one camp. Her with AT&T has been, ATT has been the longest stretch. But before that, she was with their rival, MMA Masters. And before that, I think she had one or two more camps in between there. But um, before going to ATT, she was nine and four. Under ATT, she's 12 and 1. And I think ATT's really good at taking a fighter with raw talent, especially if they have heavy hands, and molding that person into a great contender. What they're not so good at, in my opinion, is really making a fighter technical or taking a technical fighter to the next level. So in my opinion, her going to her own, starting her own camp, is going to be, I don't see it as being a positive going forward under what she's trying to do. Any thoughts on kind of what I said? Yeah, I mean, I'll jump in. 
one thing you don't one thing you didn't really specify with AT&T but you called it out about them having the ability to mold a fighter like her but AT&T is also a very much a farm system and you see a lot of fighters honestly it it's weird cuz you say farm system like I'm saying puppy mill but it's also it's almost like that but you see a lot of kickboxers mm-hmm. strikers mainly from Brazil South America and there's a there's a couple of european paths i think um Joanna's over there too right but they come in there and they learn not necessarily how to grapple, not necessarily how to wrestle, but how to defend, defend yourself from grappling mm-hmm. to land your strikes and to gain your strikes. Yeah. They don't have that, that uh, this is going to sound very dis- like disrespectful, but they don't have that strategic mind of how to mold a fighter mentally mm-hmm. and prepare them for wars. And when you watch a lot of the people, like even if you look at her last loss, her loss was a mental breakdown more so, even as much as it was a technical breakdown, it was a mental breakdown, right? When you look at Joanna, when she struggled with Rose, it was a lot of mental issues in that fight, right? Um, and that's what they're losing, or that's what she's losing, like, by staying there. So I think it makes sense for her to go, to your point, and it would make sense for her to go to another camp that can fill those holes. I just keep landing on the fact that, like, you can't build, you can't say you're starting your own camp with no team, no support, no coaching staff, if that makes sense. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there is coaching staff that we just don't know about. You can't just say you're doing that and expect me to think that this is going to be a great decision. So, Eric, anything to anything that I said or anything that TJ said? Yeah, I think that you touched on um, just kind of the um, the training partners that she would have access to. And I think that is definitely going to be a big change for her because – you know, when you're a member of a gym and you're going in and the other members of the gym are there available for you during, you know, standard training, maybe not the people they're actually sparring with when you're in your own specific training camp, but the people who, you know, you're going through practice with on a Monday through Friday basis. Um, when, when that list includes, you know, fighters like Dustin and, and Jorge and, um, and Joanna and all the other great fighters that mm-hmm. are with ATT right now, I know, I know I'm forgetting tons of them. Um, that, that's gotta be a pretty big change when you go over and start your own gym and you don't have all that star power and all of those, you know, top talent, um, fighters coming over with you. And I think that the only way she'll get, um, access to a lot of those fighters is if she starts paying them to come in as sparring partners, which, um, you know, that's definitely an option, but, you know, we're, we're currently witnessing contract disputes between the heavyweight champ and the UFC over making half a million per fight. Um, I can't imagine that they're the, you know, women's featherweight champion and, um, what was it? Bantamweight, former bantamweight champion. Now mm-hmm. I can't imagine that she's making just such an enormous amount of money that if Francis is complaining about money, she's like, Oh, I've just got so much of it. I can shell out for these, you know, high profile sparring partners. So I do wonder how the, um, how the difference in talent, uh, around her is going to change, um, change her as a fighter. But I think that ultimately if she retains her coaching staff and just has more, more attention paid to her, I think that's a good thing. And, you know, a lot of fighters getting, uh, getting a change of scenery, getting a little bit, um, of exposure to different coaching staffs can be a positive thing as well. So, I mean, I definitely agree. It's going to be weird with, with, uh, as far as a sparring partner goes, I just don't know that it's going to be all negative. One thing, if I can. Yep. He, you know, I, I did say that they were a farm system, and then Eric basically named all these top tier, you know, top ten <laughs> UFC fighters. And I know we'll get flamed for that, but I, just one thing to acknowledge, as I say, they they're a farm system in the sense of like every fighter that he named, 
um, how many of them were homegrown. They were all like, you know, they used them basically get to get to that next step, get in the UFC. And then some of them were champions before they moved over. Some of them became champions. So that's what, when I say it's a farm league, I'm, I mean, a farm camp, I'm not saying it in a disrespectful way. I'm just saying that they aren't like your homegrown. We built this from the ground up, like Faras's camp. What's his, I forgot his actual camp name, but like. Tricer. Yeah, Tricer. Yeah, no, I definitely, yeah, I definitely agree with that. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And, you know, I think you made some good points too, Eric. And, um, you know, even touching on what you mentioned earlier with um, with some camps now where people bring people over and their, their mergers. Um, one person on my list for, <clears throat> I was had for when we talk about you know, other fighters that change camps and significant things. Uh, Tyron Woodley, you know, early on, he was all ATT. And then, you know, he ended up going over to Rufus Sports, but he kept, you know, at least uh, one of his trainers from over at ATT. And then when he opened up his gym, if I'm not mistaken, it's considered an ATT affiliate. But most of his training was actually done over at Rufus Sports, you know, so it, he he's he's kind of in a, you know, hybrid. But Den Thomas and um, what is his name? Other gentleman that was training with him. Den Thomas stayed with him, but um, I don't think the other guy stayed with him. I'll think of his name later. But um, that's a prime example. And, you know, I think what it was. I think he was trying to go the route of the boxing mentality to what you pointed out, TJ. And he really just wanted the best coaches for exactly what he felt like he needed. I think the only problem with him was in that situation, he had too much decision on it. And sometimes you don't know what you need. You really need a head coach mastermind. It's one of the reasons why Jackson's, have always been so successful in, you know, so many different aspects. And as you saw, as Greg Jackson got further and further away from the program, they lost a lot of that success. And it was because Greg Jackson was really that mastermind that almost acted like a sports psychologist to them at different times. And he really would put everything together for them. It wasn't necessarily all the day-to-day training. And I think every organization needs that because, it's too hard when you're the person fighting and everything to also really see and build what you need around you. So, you know, I think that's one of the issues that I see coming up with Amanda Nunes. But I want to move on to talking about um, throwing out there other fighters that um, either change camps right after a loss, right after a title loss, or just at a significant point in time in which they kind of, you know, change camps where you're like, hey, this was pivotal in their career, whether good or bad. So I actually want to throw this one out to you first, TJ, and and just throw out maybe one person that you have and kind of give details on what you think about the change in camps and what it did for them. Yeah, I mean, it it, it sounds weird, but like you always look at not coming off a loss, but you look at John Jones jumping over to um, um, why, why I just drew a blank. Jesus Christ. 
Jackson Wink, right? Mm-hmm. And that's a fighter that was coming up that changed camps. That's the typical story you hear of a guy coming from a small town camp and jumping over and making to a big time camp and and sort of either swimming or failing, either going, being successful or failing. But then the next, the very next one is going to be Francis. It's going to be Francis Ngannou. Mm-hmm. You know, he had a solid camp. Like the you know the team out there in France, they were solid. They just didn't have a wrestling program. He suffered probably his worst defeat of his life. He goes over to Extreme Couture and like the man want to retain his belt wrestling. Mm-hmm. Like nobody would have thought that three years ago, right? But the thing that people and, and it's it's I'm I'm gathering my thoughts as I speak. So forgive my stuttering here, but all of that is great. Yeah, he wrestled. He did that fine. But what people weren't seeing is it wasn't a person telling him to paint by numbers, like go out there and throw combos. It's a person that stopped coaching him as a fighter and started coaching him mentally. Right. And and that's where when you change camps, it can't just be about getting more looks and different things. You got to get a completely different perspective on the fight game. You know what I'm saying? And that to me is like a prime example of, yeah, if you lose in a certain way where not only did you get out work, but you got, you got mentally broke. You have to go to another camp, but you got to make sure the camp is filling those gaps and holes, right? If Francis had said, like, hey, I got money now. I'm already up there. I'm going to just get a bunch of people to come in and treat me like the big dog, you know, in the room. We would never we would have never heard from Francis again. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And and that's what I like to call out. Right. Um, I don't want to be too wordy here, so I'll pass it over there. Or back to you, Dylan. Yeah, I'm going to send it over to Eric. And, and I think you threw two good ones out. Ngano was definitely on my list. But I'm going to shoot it over to Eric and see who, uh, you know, somebody that he think that uh, is kind of important on that list. Um, I think that for people who have, like, left camps at kind of pivotal moments of their career, uh, Kamaru Usman comes to mind. You know, he went over to Whitman and – um, I don't think anyone expected him to beat Jorge striking in the second match, and he went out there and starched mm-hmm. him like it was nothing. Um, you know, made a meme out of him. Um, and and that's not that's not the Kamara we saw, you know, back in the day when he was over with Black Zillions. I know that he um, his training situation is a little bit different because he was with Black Zillions and then they folded, and you know, um, I forgot where he went after that. I think Sanford MMA and then left Sanford for yeah, uh, I think Whitman's Sanford because. Right? Uh, I forget his name, but he was their striking coach over at Black Zillions. And so basically when Black Zillions kind of folded, everybody just went over there with him. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, training under Trevor Whitman, it seems like he uh, he's really developed his striking um, during that time, which is great to see. Um, and then another person that I, I think of, and it's kind of similar to the Aljo situation, is um, – Joseph Benavidez, and I don't think it was really like a pivotal moment of his career, but I do think it was kind of an important decision that he made. He had went from alpha male to, I think it was like elevation, and then he mm-hmm. left elevation for like extreme couture. And then they don't really talk about, um, like, I don't think there was anything about him like leaving extreme couture, but I think what he started to do was put together his own camps. And that's actually something I thought we were going to see more fighters doing with the introduction of the, uh, of the PI was that everyone was going to, you know, go to Vegas. It's cheap to live there and you have access to this like, you know, world-class facility and that they would just spend the time flying in the sparring partners and the coaches that they wanted to coach them because, you know, with the cost of living being so cheap and with everything else, all the access to the the PI being free for you, I thought mm-hmm. that would be something that could possibly elevate a lot of uh, fighters. Um, as far as I know, Joseph Benavidez is one of the first and one of the only fighters to actually take full advantage of that system and to go out to a place 
um, like Vegas where the MMA scene is so saturated and then be able to get training, you know, on every block essentially and, um, and learn from all these different minds. I think it's kind of a lesson. It's similar to like the Overeem situation, how Overeem jumped from camp to camp to camp to camp, you know, it's like, to camp to camp. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you know, there's just, there's, there's a lot of geniuses out in, in the MMA world, you know, um, it, it's like, you can learn how to be a great striker from Whitman, or you can learn how to be a great striker from Jason Perlo, or you can learn how to be a great striker from both of them. You know what I mean? And it doesn't seem like enough MMA fighters are taking full advantage of the, of that as an opportunity either because, you know, maybe it's, it's too cost prohibitive or maybe time constraints or this like weird thought that you have to be loyal to like one coach and one system. But, um, I think, I think his approach was the right one. Yeah, I think with that, um, I think with that system, the issue is that, um, the way it is, especially in MMA, everything's kind of tied into one. It's like if you think about the music industry, it's like you're in a damn 360 contract, right? So most of these guys, their training camp, their management, everything outside of the UFC is tied all into one. Everything outside the UFC is kind of tied all into one, you know, um, so I think that causes some issues, you know, the Black Zillions is a prime example of that where uh, when they had that, um, I forget the guy's name that was over that he, uh, he actually passed away, but I think his name was what, Greg. Glenn Robinson, Glenn, yep, that's what it was, yep, and um, yeah, you know, he was the management and what he was trying to put together, I think, was absolutely phenomenal. Now, unfortunately, once the Reebok deal came with, um, you know, with the UFC, it would have all folded anyway. But what he was trying to build was not just management in-house, but build products, clothing line, everything else in-house. And now all of the fighters have ownership in it and get a piece of that. Right. So even if you're up and coming and you don't have the big sponsors yet, you have some type of revenue just by being a part of camp and that paying some of the fees and everything else. So his idea, I think, was brilliant. Um, But nowadays it would only work outside of the UFC. Right. But um, some of the fighters I'll touch on two fighters. One, um, I'll touch on Travis Brown. I think when Travis Brown. Now, granted, he wasn't the champion. I get it. But I think it was very pivotal when uh, he left camps. He was over at Jackson Winks. And um, I believe he was over at Alliance before that. But um, kind of combined out there, he went 16-2-1. Uh, and one. And then, you know, after, um, after a loss to Fabricio Verdum, he decided, and you know, from what a lot of people said, of course, Ronda had a lot of influence on that. He was in love at the time. He decided to go out to Glendale. And I remember him doing an interview, and he was talking about how much he learned and how he never realized all these years of training, he didn't actually know how to throw a punch. And uh, uh, I forget the guy's name. Uh, Started with a T, Tiverdian. I forget his name, the, the trainer out there at Glendale. But, um, you know, um, you know, he said that basically. But so he ended up saying, hey, I didn't even know how to throw a punch. And now 
like I've learned all these skills and I'm ready to go display it. And under Glendale, he went two and three. And, you know, sometimes what you what somebody didn't teach you is there for a reason based on what you already do naturally. Right. I remember when John Jones was first coming up and I remember talking to my cousin about this. And it's actually something I mentioned in a group before. And I was saying, John Jones, when it was him, Ryan Bader, um, uh, uh, what is his name? Uh, shoot, I forget his name. The guy with the pink shorts, um, you know, it, uh, Rashad Evans, all these guys kind of coming up around the same time. And I was talking about John Jones and how everything I saw in him was special compared to them. But he was actually the most raw. But in his rawness, I felt like they were doing the right things by not handicapping him. There were certain things that he did that just wasn't necessarily right, but it didn't matter because it was right for him. And as a coach, you need a special coach to be able to see that and see, okay, this person may not be doing something exactly right, but it's very effective for them and how they fight. I don't want to change that, but the things that are not right in the areas where I feel like we could have great improvement. That's what I want. And changing the way that Travis Brown was punching, I don't think was the right thing that was needed in the heavyweight division at all at that time. You know, especially when you're talking about your your simple jab crosses. No, don't change that. Like, there's so many other things that could be worked on. And you spend all this time working on that, right? Um, now, I'm about to throw something out here that nobody whatever put out here except for me <laughs> okay so johnny hendrix now i could not find i tried to find this video that i watched maybe two years ago that was breaking down team takedown and kind of showed and talked about the coaches and the transition and everything that actually happened with team takedown i thought team takedown was um Johnny Hendricks's team, but it wasn't. He joined that team. And going back to what I said before, it was one of those situations where um, him joining Team Takedown and kind of everything being built around him, they were kind of like management. And I think they had some jujitsu and some other stuff, but they were not like a full MMA camp like that. But then they built everything around him, but he wasn't the owner or anything of that. It wasn't his, right? But they had great coaches, great wrestling coaches, striking coaches, everything like that. And then something happened in the back office that was more a business or money decision. And they pretty much got rid of all the coaches. Then also he's going through things that he went through with not working with Dolce. And literally before all of that happened, uh, he went 17 and three. Right. After that happened, he went one and five. So I know we all know the talks about USADA and how that plays and everything like that, which I think what Johnny Hendricks touched on about USADA, I could believe it's plausible. And basically what he said was before he was used to dramatically dehydrating himself and having extreme weight cuts. And he could recover because IVs were allowed. 
And he had been doing that forever. And when USADA came in, it wasn't just the drugs that they get, got rid of. You couldn't rehydrate through IV. And I know that's a big thing in boxing also. Um, so I, I think that's plausible as one of the things. Now, I'm not saying whether he was or was not on drugs. But I do think if you take any great fighter in their prime, kind of going back and forth, they're at the top already fighting the who's who, and you change their entire camp, that's going to be devastating almost to anybody. And he ended up leaving team takedown and trying to do what we talked about, where he kind of grabbed a coach from here, grabbed a coach from there, and tried to put together his own thing. But I just don't think it ever worked. So those are the two that I would throw out there. So anybody that has any rebuttals on anybody else, or if it's any other um, you know, fighters that you also want to throw into this conversation. I got two two things, if, if you don't mind, Eric. Uh, Just don't say nothing bad out. about Johnny Hendricks. <laughs> <laughs> Who? Um, you, you you caught out Usman, and it's funny. I didn't never I didn't think of him in that sense because I don't necessarily know if he left a camp as much as his camp dissolved. And he was sort of a, a wandering warrior, for lack of a better word, until he found a home. So that, that's a great shout out um, to USADA is a fictional organization that doesn't exist. Uh, <laughs> three. <laughs> I was shocked nobody called out Davidson Figueredo or Figs, as I like to call him. Uh, him retaining his championship, going over to you know Henry Henry um, Cejudo's camp. Now, I think that's kind of a prime example of a guy that had a great phenomenal camp that was teaching him how to fight. He knew what to do, but they had no nutritional value or, you know, understood the basics of like, you know, you can fight, but this is how you fight at a championship level and get to there. Um, and while I still think Brandon won that fight, I don't even know when this is dropping. Definitely won, won that, that fight. Um, and yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I still have to commend what Henry Cejudo's camp was able to do with uh, figs by one, Changing his body type within a three month was three months at least. I mean, it was that that first fight uh, or the second fight rather? Not only changing his body type, but teaching him how to you know work with that body and also mid fight game planning to keep him in the mix. Man still couldn't take Brendan's punches every time Brendan landed a punch. He like reacted as if he got hit by a truck. Um, I know he didn't fall on his back, but he, it was it was kind of interesting to watch that. But those are my two sort of observations I want to throw out of there based off of what you guys just said. No, good comments. I will say this. The only thing I'll say about Usman that I'll disagree with you some there, TJ, I, I agree that originally his camp dissolved, but he definitely went over to Samford with all the rest of those guys. But I think it was one of those things where it was almost like one of those John Jones type situations where you know that your training partner is, is coming up and it's going to be a situation where it's going to come down to, okay, we're going to fight each other. Who's going to be with who? And I think he saw some of that coming and said, I could actually go over here and get some other things and train with a guy like Justin Gaethje that's not in my weight class, so I don't have that that immediate worry, right? Yeah. But get some really good work in at a good camp. And now when you know when the next guy comes up, from this camp for my title, I'm ready for anybody. And I think it played out well, uh, you know, in that situation. And, uh, yeah, I think the um, 
Figueredo move was good. Um, and what was important about that, of course, is because Henry Cejudo, I think, was like, a, you know, kind of an indirect mentor at one point in time to Moreno. So it wasn't just the camp. It was him kind of adding information and in, knowing certain things about his student. And then, you know, stuff like that adds to the mental game of, uh, uh, you know, kind of a fighter. But I'll let you jump in there, Eric, for anything you were going to say. Yeah, I just uh, I think that one of the reasons the Figueredo um, training with Cejudo didn't really hit the radar is just because there was no, like, announcement he left his gym necessarily, just that he was training with Henry. So, like, I don't know if he's leaving his gym or not. One of the things I find interesting, um, I've talked about it in, like, the group before, but... Um, one of my, one of my old strength coaches when I was in college out in New Mexico became one of the strength conditioning coaches over at Jackson Wink for a little bit. And now his brother, um, is one of the guys who trains John Jones or used to at least. I don't know if they're still working together. Um, you know, John left Jackson Wink to go to, was it fight ready? And from my understanding, isn't fight ready like some kind of affiliate with Jackson's anyways? Or am I well, mistaken? I think, I think, I, I'm not sure if they're affiliate, but I know they're in the original location of Jackson Wink. So when Jack, Jackson Wink got big and they moved to that other location, this spot uh, bought that location. But you're right, they may be affiliate. I'm not sure, but I know it's the original Jackson Wink location. Yeah, okay. So I don't know if they actually are one or not. I thought they were. And so um, what I was going to say is my former strength and conditioning coach, has talked about how he has, uh, I think it's his father-in-law is one of Figueredo's, um, trainers. So my assumption was that Figueredo was like just going over to an affiliate where he was going to have access to like a little bit of a different look and gain access to Cejudo. And I thought that that played into like the mental warfare aspect more than like the, the skills, especially when you look at how the fight played out and how fight week played out. It seemed like he really wanted to get into Moreno's head. Um, and then when they actually fought, it's not like he went out there and started shooting like blast doubles or like inside trips or something that you'd be like, oh shit, he picked that up from Cejudo. Like there it is. Instead, it just like, it didn't look that different from their previous encounters to me from like where the fight took place, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I would agree. I think the difference maker in the judge's eyes were those knockdowns. I, I didn't even check to see who the judges were, but it, it was more like they were judging a boxing match versus an MMA fight, which, you know, we know forever this has been an issue. I don't know if it'll ever change, but boxing rules for MMA, we've seen time and time again, it's a problem, right? Because a guy getting knocked down does not win a round in MMA the way that it does in boxing. It's not an immediate point, but it was almost like that's how they had to judge it to give that to Figueredo, right? Because if you're, even if you're judging it and you, you want to make that knock down a high point, you scored a round even because Moreno's winning that whole round and then gets knocked down toward the end. If anything, you scored even, right? So I think that was kind of the problem with the, the scoring in that fight, not to go too far on a tangent. But I agree with everything you said about the Cejudo. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't realize Cejudo was uh, in his camp until I think it was either Wednesday when I like caught one of the one of the uh, behind the scenes videos. But like, I honestly did not know he was in his camp. And then at first, I was like, "It's a different look." And then when I saw him in the corner, 
That's what I was like, oh, he, you know, he, he's in a whole new camp. So, yeah. Yep. So, anybody else you all want to throw out? If not, I got a couple questions for you. Those are all top level. I mean, Joanna going to AK, I mean, ATT. Actually, I have to talk one. about that one, but go ahead. Okay. No, you know. I was just going to say, I was going to just touch on it. Like, her going over there was interesting. I, I don't know if I 100% think it worked the way she wanted it to work, but also know she was going through a lot of uh, personal and mental things when she made that jump that I don't, I'm hoping she's out of it, but that's one other one I would call out. And then I don't, what do we, if I can ask the group, what do we stand on the GSP sort of late in his career run when he was, you know, between Faraz and, and Jackson week? I think he was always pretty much between those two counts. Didn't they have like some type of almost like affiliate agreement? Cause I think they always train with each other, but maintained it, it being a separate account. I mean, separate camps. Yeah, I thought that affiliation really only came because of GSP. Like, mm-hmm. and, and again, this is the one where you I, you can check my MMA history here. But I always thought he started at Ross and then it, it was either the first Matt Hughes loss, I want to say, or somewhere in there where he went to Wink. Mm-hmm. And even though he mainly trained at Ross's, but Wink was his corner. So it's like, does that count as jumping camps or like, I don't know, is that just one of those weird hybrids? I think Good that, question. Um, Good question. Go ahead. I think that with GSP, uh, what's kind of interesting about it is that like Frost was always considered his head trainer, and then he just, um, I think he had already trained at, at Henzo's, if I'm not mistaken, before he even went over to TriStar, or maybe he started off at TriStar and then went over to Henzo's for Jiu-Jitsu, but was still with TriStar, and so GSP kind of had that for the entirety of his career, where like not everything was through one gym, um, and then after that, I think it was after. After he lost one of the mats, I'm not I'm not entirely sure which one, and I'd have to go back and check. But there's like that iconic picture where they're all wearing like affliction uh, shirts in his corner, where it's you got Faraz and um, Jackson and John Danaher and um, and, and Phil Nurse. And Phil, Nurse. Phil, Phil Nurse. I always forget his name, and I feel bad because I'm like he deserves the shine that the rest of them get, but I just yeah. never remember the name. Nobody, <laughs> Nobody, unless you're a real like MMA hit, I don't think if anybody ever seen him or anything, they would have no idea who he is. So yeah, um, so I'm gonna touch on uh, touch on Joanna, and um, so I think her decision to leave. I think she went to the wrong camp and that that's the issue her leaving. I think some of her issues actually had to do with, if I'm not mistaken, one of the people in management or something in her camp. And then also I think she really wanted to come and train in the U S but it's something very significant with, um, classically trained fighters in certain disciplines. And one of those disciplines, I believe, is that Dutch-style kickboxing. In my opinion, and as always, I have no problem telling people I'm biased, <laughs> right? But in my opinion, for MMA, Dutch-style kickboxing is what I've seen to be one of the most effective styles to cross over into MMA. When you compare whether it's American kickboxing, Muay Thai, whatever else, Dutch style. And her original training, and of course we know she was a kickboxer first or Muay Thai, whatever you want to, depending on what organization she was fighting in. 
her training started under um, uh, Ernesto Hoos' team, which for people that may not know or know the world of kickboxing, he was like considered the GOAT, you know, of GOATs for a long time and uh, pretty much kept fighting pretty late uh, in his career. But, uh, you know, some of the things that we see now with leg kicks and everything that people just see as the thing or the style, a lot of that started with him. Um, And he was one of my favorite kickboxers back in the day. Now, I didn't start watching him until he was already a little older by the time I got into kickboxing, but he was still a powerhouse. Um, And if you want to see a crazy, ridiculous fight, uh, go and watch him versus um, Bob Sapp. <laughs> it, it, it's ridiculous. But saying that to say, her style was very much like you can tell she came from a camp like that. And her style was devastating, especially because in women's MMA, particularly at the lower weight classes, nobody had that type of strike and nobody was close. And she blew everybody out of the water. And then I believe it was after the first Claudia Gadea fight or first or second. That's when she changed and went over to ATT. And from that point on, you start to see her striking slip. She doesn't throw nearly the amount of elbows. The, before she would hit you with every single thing she had. Now it's more striking and, you know, she's throwing hands and, you know, it's, it, it, it completely changed her style. And it goes back to something I mentioned before. I don't feel like, and I could be wrong, but I don't feel like AT, ATT does a great job if they have a very technical fighter taking that fighter, maintaining those skills and building on it. I think they do a lot better with raw talent to build up that raw talent. So I feel like she took a step backwards. If anything, she should have went to a camp that at least had a coach that really was training that style that can help her with a little bit more footwork and some wrestling. Maybe Bang Muay Thai would have been a, a, a good transition, be it that uh, one, there's a lot of people in that camp, although they're males, would have been more her size, but two, uh, as we know, uh, Dwayne Ludwig was trained in Dutch style under, uh, um, what is his name? Uh, you know, the guy that do, does the splits, the Dutch guy. Um, I'll think of his name later. Um, but, um, you know, so we know he was trained in that style. So he understood it. He understood what he, not to take away from her and what to enhance. And I think it would have been a very, very much a better placement for her than going over to ATT but in general I think it was a bad move for her and and just for a note um before she went to ATT she was 12 and 0 at ATT she's 4 and 4 Jesus wow any thoughts on that before we move on or anything else you all want to throw out before we move on to a couple questions and then pretty much yeah, we're going to wrap mean, it up. Sorry, I didn't mean to talk over nope, you. Go ahead. Uh, are we, and maybe this is part of your questions, but are we talking about just why it's not good for certain fighters to move, you know, jump around? Like we caught, you caught out Overeem going camp to camp to camp to camp to camp. 
Um, I've always had a theory that like, while it's good to get different looks, you have to be careful because eventually your style gets so spread around the org, like the, the, the industry that no matter where you go, people will tell you, yeah, you know, these are all his weakness and it becomes very, mm-hmm. you know, transparent. And one, again, outside of the fictional organization that is out there, um, <laughs> You can make all the arguments that he, you know, his he slipped because of the drugs or the enhancement. But I also wonder if, like, there became a certain point where it was a blueprint to train for him and everybody followed that blueprint. Because all of his defeats came pretty much in the same sort of style. Like, people knew what his deficiencies was, right? So I'm wondering if, uh, what do you guys think on that? Then I'll shut up. Go ahead, Eric. You want to dive in? Or yeah, um, I, I think that you definitely got to tread carefully when you are bouncing from camp to camp. But I think that um, I look at it as kind of like the the Bruce Lee approach to martial arts, where like you learn everything that you can, and you just discard all the useless shit that doesn't apply to you or doesn't doesn't help you. And I think that for some people, they're going to have an easier time doing that than others. Um, and unfortunately, in the fight game, in in um, MMA specifically, you know, it's uh, the process of finding that out can be very costly. You know, if you go into um, into a, a fight and you don't entirely know what's going to work best for you and what's not, and you're still testing these things out, and you haven't had a chance to have like a full camp with these new skills um, in your arsenal, then yeah, you're probably going to run into some problems. Um, I think I think with Overroom, I think he's done a good job of picking up what he can from where from where he can. Um, but I definitely agree that there are fighters who they make a change and you start to see that they're not really learning anything or they're not um, they're not developing any new skills. And that, I think, is when it becomes very problematic to bounce from camp to camp. Yeah, no, I can agree with both of those. I think another big problem with bouncing around is that um, once again, going back into the scenario I mentioned earlier, you want to tweak a fighter, not completely change a fighter. Right. So that would be like Francis Ngano going over to um, Extreme Couture and they completely change all of his striking. That doesn't make sense. Why would you do that? The striking is working for him right now. Now, that, that doesn't mean you don't tweak things in the striking, but the striking is working. But what you can do is add the wrestling. And that's where you also bring in Usman to your camp and everything like that and going into something both of you all mentioned, you know, kind of the head game. And I, I apologize. I forget his, uh, you know, who was acting as his head coach over at Extreme Couture, but I think he did a good job, especially on the sideline kind of things he called out to him, everything like that. But I think those things are important. So when you're bouncing around, you don't get the right consistency to tweak and build on what you have. You get a lot of people trying to change you, and I think that ruins you. So we don't have much longer left. I'm going to throw out two questions. You can answer both of them or you can answer one of them, either one. Now, the first one is, who do you think should have changed camps but did not change camps? First question. Second question is, who do you think needed to change camps? They did change camps, but they went to the wrong camp. And I can repeat both of those once again for you all. First question is, who do you think should have changed camps but didn't? They just stayed with a camp too long, too loyal, whatever else. And who do you think needed to change camps 
It was a good decision. They did change, but then they went to the wrong camp. Whichever one of you all want to hop on it first, or I'll pick somebody. <laughs> I'm going to let Eric have it because it's taking me. Uh, I got to think that one. Through. Okay. You can answer one or both of them, either one. I'm trying to think of an answer for the first one. Um, but for the second one, I think it's, I think that the, the easiest answer, um, is Kevin Lee. And, you know, Kevin Lee, he is another person who left a camp under, um, it was a different set of circumstances. I can't remember the coach's name. Um, but, you know, his coach, uh, you know, passed away and, um, he was kind of, kind of left to figure out where to go from there. And he, he went to a couple different places. I know he wound up at TriStar for some amount of time. Um, but, you know, we've seen him just not look good ever since the loss to Tony Ferguson. Like he's had flashes of brilliance, but for the most part, he's kind of just, I mean, he's at, he's at Eagle FC at this point. And, um, you know, I, I'm a big Khabib guy and I'm hoping that Eagle FC is a really dope promotion and everything. I hope that they have all the success in the world. But ultimately, like, as of right now, I don't even know if it's a B-list promotion without the fact that Khabib's name, you know, carries a little bit. So to right. see Kevin Lee wind up there, I think that's an indication that clearly something went wrong in his career and maybe he should have been more selective with his camp choice. Personally, I thought, um, and I'm, I'm going to be biased here and I know that I am. I thought it'd be great to see him training out of, uh, 10th plan at Las Vegas. Um, coach Casey Halstead out of there. Um, that's not biased at all. Calling the coach's <laughs> name out and everything. Yeah. He's, uh, <laughs> I, I feel like he serves, um, a similar you already role. Got your blue belt, right? Yeah, exactly. I don't, I don't need to, I don't need to kiss ass anymore because I got my blue belt. Yeah. Um, no, but I think that he's, uh, he's, he's as good at motivating people as he is at coaching them. And I think that that's what Kevin Lee needed is he needed someone to um, help keep him on the right path and, and help keep his head high, especially after he was taking all. I mean, he looked like he was just absolutely devastated when he lost to Iaquinta. Um, mm-hmm. I think that was the second time. And like, I don't know. I just, I, I feel like um, having, having been in Casey's classes before and having listened to how he speaks to his athletes, He's the kind of person who's not going to allow you to get down on yourself and who's not going to allow you to take any time off. You know what I mean? I, th- I feel like it would have been good for him, but I, I don't know if we'll ever find out. I know he's trained there before, but I'd like to see him do like a full camp with Casey in his corner. No, I think that was a good one. I didn't think about that one at all. Uh, TJ, you want to go? If if you don't have anything yet, I can go and give you yeah, a, little, I mean, a little bit more time. Sorry. I, I it, If I dug deep into my, like, geekdom of MMA. I could come up with a bunch of names. Um, I got one that's a little bit controversial and everybody will say I'm crazy, so I'll drop save that for the end. But I think one that stands out to me the most is t- in terms of changing camps but going to the wrong camp is Cody Garbrandt. Um, I I still think he's a high-level fighter. He just He's in a situation where he doesn't know, or he's not being taught to fight anymore, right? Like, I, I get the whole high head situation. I get the whole, like, you know, if you can, if you can put him in a gunfight, you can shoot him in the face. You know what I'm saying? Like, he's that guy, but I feel like he left Team Alpha Male, lost, lost his ability to not only choose his striking, but his, his footwork, his movement, and everything else. And he's gone to so many different camps where he just, he's not really being challenged. I think something like a Jackson Wink would have done him well. Honestly, I think even if he'd went up there with Ferocity, he would have done well. AKA probably would have done him well. And he's one of those guys that I think of. Not a fan of his, not going to lie, but I, he, he it stands out. 
um, in terms of needing to change camps to be to cross that next level. A little bit far far fetched here, but I think Derek Lewis. I think uh, he knows how to fight. He knows how to box. He has the power. Honestly, I think he needs something like an AKA to just put him in his corner to take him to that next level. Otherwise, he's going to be a gatekeeper to the championship, you know, to that top three, top five championship. Um, and then lastly, controversial, Max Holloway. I think the only thing, Max Holloway to me is one of the greatest 145s ever. I know he's a winning 145er and I know everybody loves him and we love him. But I do think there's something, he needs another look from a high-level coach. Um, and you guys call out his coach name if you can think of it, but I can't think of it at this point. I think he needs a high level coach to make him unbeatable. And that's what he's missing. That Those are my thoughts. No, I, I like those. Um, I did not know that Cody Garbrandt had changed camps. Um, but I would say a person like him needed to go over to Trevor Whitman. And the reason why I say that is because if you look at, uh, you know, Justin Gaethje is not that big of a difference of the type of hothead personality. And I think Trevor Whitman did a really good job of reeling him in. And I think we talked on, on one of the episodes before about kind of, you know, when he came over. And I think he went 0-2, like his first two fights in the UFC. And it was, you know, Trevor Whitman kind of getting him out of that brawler mentality and getting him over to being because he's he's a really good striker, but it's one of those things you know how you have some guys if they get hit, they just want to go crazy and I have to hit back and all strategy everything we worked on goes out of the window. And I think Garbrandt is one of those guys. I think he, I think he finishes TJ in that fight if he had more control. You know, I, and I forget if it was the first or the, I think he hurt him in both fights, but you know, but when you're a hothead and you all of a sudden get hit or something, you just go off the plan. It's a whole different scenario, but I'll give my answers to those. So as far as the person, I think that should have changed camps, but didn't Frankie Edgar. I think he's a very, very loyal guy. I would have actually loved to see him go over to AMC Pancration, which is where DJ and Bibiando Fernandez, uh, a guy that's not in the UFC, but I think was a UFC caliber fighter. He's over in one right now. Guy that I really like. Um, I think between those guys, what they do, footwork, what Matt Hume kind of does with those guys, I think could have been good for Frankie Edgar. The His issue is I think he has the exact same style that he's always had. And it's too easy to train for now. There's too much footage, everything like that. And I think he could have gotten some really good tweaks training with, I know DJ is smaller than him, but, um, you know, training with DJ and Bibiano and being under the tutelage of Matt Hume, I think really could have tweaked him. But, um, you know, that group of guys over there, he's out of Almeida Jiu-Jitsu, very loyal group of guys. I don't think he would ever leave. I think he would retire first, you know. His guys, the guys that train over there with – um with Matt Sarah and you know they're they're all kind of a, a a larger group but they're individual camps right but you know all of their guys are pretty loyal I know Eric mentioned uh uh you know Funk Master as being a person that kind of you know start doing some some stuff out in Vegas or whatever but still tight you know to that camp and as far as a person I think 
needed to change camps, did, but went to the wrong camp, Tyron Woodley. You know, I kind of mentioned he changed but didn't change. He should have went to TriStar. I think the issue was he had his mind so set on one day he was going to fight GSP. He really just didn't see what was coming up behind him. And the reason TriStar is because one of the things that TriStar has always been good at to me is taking wrestlers and helping them understand how to mix their striking and wrestling. This is something I always said about Woodley. And then what comes along to take over the 170 division? All guys that know how to mix up their striking and wrestling. And all of a sudden, he couldn't touch any of them. And he really should have been preparing and watching those guys coming up and being out there training with, I don't know if Rory's still out there, but training with some of those big welterweights and learning to mix it up because it's not like he doesn't have both. Now, how much more powerful also is your counterpunching when every time you flinch, a guy doesn't know if you're going to throw a quick jab or take him down or if you're trying to bait him in to throw a punch so you can counter. You become a lot You become a lot more unpredictable. And the problem is he was very predictable and easy for those big welterweights to, uh, you know, just have their way with him. So I'll let you all dive into anything that's a rebuttal or anything else that you may want to add to either of those questions, and then we're going to wrap it up. Um, yeah, I think that um, it's it's funny that you mention uh, going over to AMC, um, just because that's kind of someone I thought of as someone who I kind of thought should leave camps is uh, is DJ, and it's and it's less to do with his development as a fighter, and just a little bit to do with like how his career has panned out. So. Um, you know, he obviously didn't get along with UFC brass and, um, I don't know if that's a matter of like the management that he had, or if it's a matter of like the, the coaching situation around him. I just think that maybe a different mind being, um, a part of, a part of his camp maybe could have helped him navigate that a little bit better so that he would have stayed in the UFC in the, you know, twilight of his career rather than going over to one FC. Um, not that that's like that big of a deal. I think if he's getting paid and he's making good money, good for him. Um, but the other thing is just, you know, he's, his, pe- people used to comment on the relationship he had with his coach, Matt Hume, where they would say that it was almost like playing a video game where like Matt Hume is like, you know, just shouting instructions to DJ and he's just doing all of these things like on command in the moment better than you ever see a fighter be able to like pay attention to instructions and implement them in real time. And so he goes over to one FC and because Matt Hume's a vice president there, he's all of a sudden not allowed in his corner. And it's like, I just don't know that you mess with the formula that won you a championship and had you become, um, you know, have you break the record for most title defenses. I don't know if you take that and you make changes like that this late in your career without it being a, a, a little bit of a more grand change where you're adopting a new head coach that has the same level of like intelligence and brilliance and maybe um, familiarity with your game as someone like Matt Hume. I have to imagine that if he had a mind like, um, you know, the Trevor Whitmans and Jason Perillos of the world that maybe he has a little bit more success at 1FC. Not that he hasn't been successful, but I mean, we did just see him get knocked out not that long ago. Um, he did fight so, yeah. a giant too, you gotta admit. No, that's definitely very true. That wasn't like a regular, like, 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 um, Adriano, he's like, he easily could be like a 55er. Like, yeah, easily. Yeah. 
He's a big dude. <laughs> Yeah, yeah I, th- I thought I was being like hyperbolic when I was saying the dude could be a one fifty. No, he absolutely but... could be. <laughs> and and he caught him with something that DJ just down to his genetics is not used to looking out for, which is you're getting up and a guy flies and knees you in the face. Like, not I'm not taking it away from him, but like he spent the better part of his career not having to worry about that. So it's yeah, yeah. I think you made a made really good points, so Eric. And the only thing I'll say is. Under AMC Pancration, he, in my opinion, he has one loss, and that's to Dominic Cruz at a higher weight division. I don't think he lost that Cejudo fight. We saw what he did to Cejudo the first time. He came into that fight with a messed up knee. You can say it was close, but I just don't see Cejudo, and I've watched it back more than once. I don't see Cejudo winning that. But I also think that DJ, going back to kind of what you said about kind of, you know, his beef with the UFC, I think the issue was more, not necessarily a beef, but the UFC is, they're terrible at promoting fighters that's not of um, your your loud mouth, you know, say anything to get attention. Like, who have they really done a good job at promoting that was not that person other than maybe GSP. And they really never had to, to promote GSP because he had all of Canada behind him. But who's like a regular guy? Like, like, do you think they would have ever been able to pr- uh, promote a uh, um, uh, Oscar De La Hoya, a golden boy that r- didn't talk trash or anything like that. That was always showing up in suits and stuff before anybody, they don't know what to do with him. So they had a whole audience. They could have tapped in with DJ because the nerd movement is on the rise. The video game movement is on the rise. He's a big Twitch guy. They're like, we don't know what to do with this little short 125 nerd. That's what it came down to. And that's why Henry Cejudo came out with the persona of Triple C to try to bring you know, craziness to that division. And all of a sudden they're like, oh yeah, it's great. Right. But I, I don't think it was, it was DJ and, you know, up to, you know, the, you know, Adriano fight, you know, I only really have him losing to Dominic Cruz. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that my, my main thing with him, with the reason I think he should have switched camps more, more so had to do with just the relationship with his coach and his coach not being able to be in his corner. And I know that he has other coaches that are like super familiar with him. I just don't, you know, is, is the guy who's, you know, second in command over at AMC Pancration, is he as brilliant as, as a Whitman is? Cause if he is, I don't know why he doesn't have his own gym with his own champions. You know what I mean? So, I mean, to be fair, I'm not familiar with AMC Pancration and their coaching staff and what their accomplishments are outside of DJ. I just, I think that he maybe would have benefited from having, um, someone who's a little bit more well-known in his corner once he moved to one FC and couldn't have Matt Hume in his corner anymore. Yeah. The only thing I would say there is just, you know, probably don't want to change camps. And then your, uh, you know, your head guy is the president too. You know, you think you fought a big guy there. They, you know, they, <laughs> they have you fighting 170 foul fighters. Anything else from you, TJ, before we wrap it up? No, I was just going to say, Eric, that's a great call out and like the breakdown of DJ. I, I never thought about it like that. So I think that's a, br- a brilliant call out there. That, that's all I have. 
Okay, great. So, um, you know, for everybody, you know, I'm pretty sure there's a lot of fighters that we missed. There's some things we're going to think about afterwards. Say, oh, man, I should have mentioned this person or whatever else. But if you could think of anybody, uh, you know, somebody that changed camps after a loss, somebody that should have changed camps, whatever else, just go ahead and drop us a message on any of our social medias. Let us know. And, uh, you know, it might be something that brings up a conversation for us to talk about it next next time. But I want to thank our two guests. Of course, we had TJ, the returning champion, more times than anybody else. <laughs> and then, of course, we had Eric on here. Um, and, you know, he brought up some really great points, hit from a few different angles that I didn't think of. And I, I want to thank you both. Any last words from you? Um, you know, just thank you for having me on and wanted to give a shout out to, uh, 10th Planet Orange County and 10th Planet Mission Viejo, as well as Joseph Soul, who is the guy who got me into the Facebook group that we're all a part of, which is, you know, where we met and started talking about our love for Rory McDonald. <laughs> Anything else from you, <laughs> TJ? Uh, yeah, uh, I'm usually really bored on Sunday, so if you don't agree with my opinion, drop it in the comments section. I'll get in there and get dirty with you guys. So, uh, <laughs> I, hey, I didn't even realize we were on YouTube. Now that I know, it's on. Side note to that, I know I was supposed to be wrapping it up, but that whole conversation I was having with somebody on YouTube, the whole thing got erased. I don't know if he did it or if YouTube took it down, but I was so upset. The entire oh, conversation awesome. got erased. Of course, I have Ooh. screenshots, and maybe I'll put them up at some point. But <laughs> I was about to create because my YouTube account is attached to my Google. I was about to create another account just so I could go. <laughs> well, I want to thank everybody for listening. This wraps up another Fat Boy MMA podcast. Come back and listen to the next one. Thank you. That wraps up another Fat Boy MMA podcast. If you have a topic for us, please email us at fatboymma55 at gmail.com or reach out to us on social media by going to links.fatboymma.com. That's links.fatboymma.com. Thank you for listening. Just see